Welcome to Reconstructed Faith, a podcast where we talk about truth you can build your life on. We hope to dive into the hard conversations of life and faith and seek out reasonable, substantive answers. My name is Colson Lechner, and I'm joined by Chris Sherrod and Chris Legg. This is Reconstructed Faith. Hello and welcome to the Reconstructed Faith Podcast. My name is Colson Lechner and you are about to listen to the second installment of the conversation that Chris has had with David C. Smalley. Now, if, if you're just now stepping into the series, haven't listened to anything um, on this, I would encourage you to start back with an Atheist View Part 1, uh, which will give you a good basis of where the conversation started before jumping in right into the middle of the content of this episode. So, as we get started now... Uh, I want to encourage you to jot down some questions um, or just things that kind of came up for you uh, as you were listening to the conversation. And in the next episode, we're going to spend some time with the Chris's unpacking key concepts that came up during their time with David. So without any further ado, here is an Atheist View Part 2. So what he's, in Isaiah, he's clearly describing... I am I am the creator of of all of this. Like of, I'm the source kind of, behind this. He's kind of flexing that I'm every I do everything. Yes. So like. the calamity, yeah, he is I think he is saying I'm the one who made right. uh I'm the one who brings peace. I'm the one who and I think actually I mean that would be a separate question which I think is a it is a tough question and you and I spent it's been a long time but I think we spent a long time talking about it is what we would call natural evil or natural suffering like tsunamis and earthquakes and right. and that's probably what he's talking about there is I create calamity big big things like that. Let me let me challenge that because I, I think so if you if you go back to I believe it's Exodus nine through I think it goes into twelve, but for sure eleven, where you have the the Pharaoh's people are, are held captive, right? <clears throat> the way the story goes is God goes to the Pharaoh, and again, I'm 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 going to get back to this because this is I think this is an example of God directly, not only creating it but inciting, our new favorite word, uh, in, <laughs> in, inciting evil to happen to innocent people. So okay, this is this is my evidence for this. When you look at Exodus nine, God goes to the Pharaoh. It's very important that it's the Pharaoh, and it says he hardens the Pharaoh's heart so that he will not listen to Moses and Aaron. Right. Specifically for the reason of him not listening. So then when Moses and Aaron go, hey, let our people go, the Pharaoh says no. Why? Because God hardened his heart so that he would not listen. And then God, in his wisdom, in order to convince the Pharaoh to let the people go, he could have unhardened his heart, just from a writer's perspective, right? But he doesn't. He kills the firstborn of everyone in the village, of every household in the village, until the Pharaoh agrees to let the people go, which was the whole point of the Passover. In order for God to pass over your home and not kill your firstborn, you needed to, once again, sacrifice a lamb and rub the blood on the post outside so that God would know you were one of the good ones. That's bizarre about God's knowledge, by the way. Just put that aside for a second. He wouldn't know that unless you killed a lamb. That's very strange. But imagine now that you are the father, and you have a firstborn child that's 18 months old, and that child starts to wither in pain and die, 
because of why? What's the series of events that your child is now suffering in pain and dying in your in your hut somewhere in this village? You didn't know the plan. You weren't one of the, quote, chosen people. So you didn't know you had to go murder a lamb and rub its blood outside. So you're just inside with your kid dying, not knowing what's going on. And this is all part of God's plan to punish the Pharaoh by killing your child because of a Pharaoh's heart that he hardened so that he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron. It's like he's the arsonist, and then he wants to be thanked for pulling you out the window at the last second. And it just sounds to me like God is stirring the pot and creating this very evil situation and then wanting credit for saving it. And the question I'm going to end with here, and the question atheists have, or at least believers have, that oftentimes turn us into atheists, is one, why didn't he just unharden the heart? And two, if you are the parent inside who is losing the child, or if you are the child itself going through that suffering, doesn't that feel like evil to you? And who's causing it? Yeah. So I think part of the answer, I don't know the order yeah. of the hardening. Are you looking that up? Well, yeah. <clears throat> Because some of if you if you read what happens is Pharaoh does harden his heart. Were you yes. Gonna, did you look that up? Yeah. So God says he predicts in advance when I send you Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. That's one. Then two Pharaoh's heart becomes hard in seven twenty two. In in the second plague that's after the blood after the second plague Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In the third plague Pharaoh's heart was hardened was hard. Ver, the fourth one, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Fifth plague, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Sixth plague, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The seventh plague, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Eighth plague, God announces the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Ninth plague, plague God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And tenth plague, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So three out of three out of three the ten. out of the ten, you have God taking on a, um, and there's. So there's a there's a few different things to it, in my opinion, and and one of them is there is again the the bugaboo. There is a contextual issue. There you go. So, um, and part of it does have to do with the Hebrew, and and so, but for me, but so there's a couple of different directions, and one is even if all of Exodus should be tossed out, that would not undermine the claims of Christianity. And that's to me. That's that's vital to me. It's not necessary to me that if we if someone were to say, "Listen, this was a bad translation," or "Listen, these people just didn't. They were pre-modern, so they assigned everything to God. Like they didn't. The shock for them was the thought that Pharaoh could harden his own heart, not that God would harden his heart. It's it's a causational thing. Like, well, it happened. God must have done it. Fate or God or something. Even if it was just contextual, that from that perspective, that would be one. My my perspective is. Which and I know this is actually in many conversations. This is the step that is so hard. Is is the which we talked about, and I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about me being raised by professors, mm-hmm. and being raised by professors, and and I want you to get to your point. I know you've got one, an additional one to this specific thing in a second, but is that is and I think we may have even talked about that. Have we talked about it on another? Surely we have on one of the reconstructed podcast, but my, me being raised by professors so that I have a dad who knows more than anyone else in the world oh, about yeah. Yeah, anyone, about but like two people in the whole world about bugs. Oh, okay. He's a forestry professor. And I remember trees. You talked about yeah, trees. That's right. Too. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so he's a forestry professor, and yet if I brought a bug to his office, he would send me down to Dr. Colhavey's office, who was the entomologist. I'm like, Dad, I, I mean, Dr. Colhavey may be the only person in East Texas who knows more about this than you. And he's like, right, so you need to go talk to him. And, and, um, and so I was raised around people who were experts. And so I'm always willing to let people be experts. It's a, it's a propensity. When it comes to human motivation, it's one of the things that I'm, I am willing to let God be an expert on. When is the proper, the proper case for, okay, now's the time to let heart, Pharaoh harden his own heart as I knew he would and said that he would. Here is the proper time to maintain that hardening. And even here's the proper time to not force my will on him, which certainly he could have done. He could have forced his will and softened Pharaoh's heart, as you said. He could have forced his will on him. And or done he could that. have just not hardened it. Well, it was... That wouldn't be forcing his will if he just didn't do it to begin with. Which, I mean, I think the passage is that Pharaoh's heart had hardened his own heart. Right, but if God then hardened it, that meant it was softened by Pharaoh at some point on his own. Oh, I see. That's And that's, God could have just not intervened for the negativity, which was my entire point. Yeah, so this is this is where it gets hard into the into the Hebrew, which is the the language is... Yeah, that's what I was trying to look up because I haven't obviously I wasn't prepared for the specific for the specific point, but it does come to God calling Pharaoh to humble himself, and he and Pharaoh fights back, and the language is that it is a passive. See, that's what I got. I can't. I don't have time to look it up in detail. Maybe I can at another podcast look up it, but but the implication is that the ambiguous language here is that. It could also be translated that God is working against Pharaoh's hardened heart, and so it could it could that would literally be the opposite. It, because, it well that's part because of the, it says it even gives the reason though it says he hardened the heart of the Pharaoh so that he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. I believe it's Exodus nine twelve. Um, I haven't looked at it in a long time, but if I have my phone here, I can. Well, I'm looking at here's the the last one about the before the death of the firstborn for Passover. Um, and the language here says, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. 9-12. Chris, while I'm looking it up, why don't you go ahead and what were you going to say to as well? Oh, well, I was going to go back to the people putting the blood on the door. Part. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. No, all I was going to say there, it's not that God didn't know, but what he constantly, you see all through scriptures, God asking people to demonstrate their faith. <coughs> In a tangible way. In other words, those if you do believe, then it's going to be demonstrated through obedience. Okay. Um, and so my view with that is not that he's going, oh, okay, so he's a believer too. I had no idea. It's not like God is, is just now discovering that, you know, little uh, Hebrew guy it wasn't a believer. My view would be this is God saying um, as an act of faith or an act of trust or, or a demonstration of that you're going to believe what I say, then you're going to put this on your door. So I, I wouldn't. I don't look at it and say, like, God had no idea who it was until they did that. It's more, I'm asking you to demonstrate your faith in doing this. I, and the Christian view would be, you're always saved by faith. It's always been demonstrated in action, but it's it's going to be faith in what God has revealed. Itself. So in an apologetic discussion, the atheist would say, then why doesn't it say that? Because that sounds better. If it's, I know which home you're in, but as a demonstration of faith, I want you to sacrifice this lamb and rub mm-hmm. the blood outside. That sounds better. 
like I, again, I think you you would be a better communicator <laughs> than the author of, the, of that of that of that right. piece. But if also, that's the purpose though, I think the purpose is just to tell us to tell the story. Certainly, Chris would be a better communicator to a 22nd century American mm-hmm. than the writer of Exodus would be. Yeah, I mean, there's but, no doubt about that. But this is all. Are we in the 21st? This is all pretty. What? 20. Would this be 22nd, 22nd century? Are we in the 22nd? I don't know how to I do that math. That confused me. Now we're not. We're, we're still. Isn't the, 21 we're in the starting at 2100? Wouldn't that be the 22nd century? What century am I in? <laughs> oh, it doesn't know. <laughs> It brought up some stuff. It for was twentieth century Fox, and now we're in the twenty first century. All right, what's, what? I think we're in the twenty first century. Right. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I found it. It's Exodus seven three four. It says, "But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, uh, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you." Exodus. Say that again. Seven, seven three through four. But I think there's another one in nine where it says it's like. It's not God talking. It's saying, then God did, did this. Right. So he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Would you say, while Chris is looking that up, I'm going on a sidebar here. Sure. Because you had kind of implied this earlier. Would you say a lot of the people that struggle or deconstruct their faith, a lot of it they really do have tender hearts and they are bothered in, in a not like an angry way against God, but it's more like that, that would be so sad if that's actually, you know what I'm saying? Because the example you gave I'll tell is, you. The yeah. father whose you know child is dying, that that's yeah. a lot of the objections. It just doesn't seem absolutely okay. that most the vast majority, and this is why it's so hurtful when Christians turn on their atheist family members. The vast majority of people I can't speak for everyone because yeah. I know atheists who are atheists for terrible reasons, but the vast majority of people who become atheist, <clears throat> it's a bit like turning against a father who is abusive. Mm-hmm. It's like, I love you, I want to be with you, I want to be close to you, I tried for years to be close to you, but you kept beating mom, you kept stealing, you kept hiding money under the blanket and drinking all of our grocery money away and making right. us eat out of dumpsters, you kept hitting us, you kept molesting us, that, that level of torture, eventually they go, I can't talk to that guy anymore, even though he's my flesh and blood and I know he exists. It's a breaking up with someone that you want to respect and admire. The vast majority of them start to deconstruct, and they do it in this way that is very mournful. Mm -hmm. It's sad because not only do they lose what they thought was a guiding principle in their lives, but they lose their community. They lose the the friends and, um, you know, people that are going to help paint the fence or meet up every Sunday and have the casserole and talk about the football game. I mean, the, the choirs, the plays, so many people are, are so um, just deeply involved with several aspects of the church that that is their community. Mm-hmm. So even when they don't believe, they keep coming. And when they finally stand up and go, I don't think this guy is real because I don't see how a loving God would do this to his creation. Mm-hmm. And they walk away it's like they're breaking up with everything in their life, and it's so sad. So to then be turned on by their Christian family members, it, it feels more like you guys are in a cult rather than you love us and we just disagree. Right. You know? So would you say you believe in any version of God? Is it just 
the Bible is more, you know what I'm saying? Are you landed on, I'm a hardcore, there is literally no spiritual side of anything or just not the God of the Bible? I am still waiting on evidence to believe in the supernatural period. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that is not empirically proven, I think there's room to doubt. Uh, and I think the closest I could come to having knowledge that I can't demonstrate is a dream. I could tell you I had a dream last night about the comedy show that I did, and I could tell you all the details that happened, and you can go prove that that dream really happened. And I can't. Mm -hmm. But I know that it happened to me, so I have my personal experience, and that's where that should stop. The problem is Christianity goes that next level of saying, not only did I have that dream, if you don't believe it, here are all the threats, Mm -hmm. and here's how I'm going to manipulate the policies of our government. And... I'm not going to pay taxes because of my church. However, I'm going to have huge political influence and I'm not going to pay to play. And I'm going to manipulate things so that you have to play according to my rules because you don't believe my dream. And that's where there's the discussion needs to happen, right? I would never say you're under threat of duress for not believing my dream about my comedy show. Right, right. So that, that's where it turns into a... It turns in, your belief becomes my business uh-huh. when you vote. Do you follow... Have you read much like the intelligent design, like Stephen Meyer oh, yeah. and God Hypothesis and stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, when you look at that, you just go, that's still not empirical, en- empirical enough. It's not. Yeah, it's not. And there's really no such thing as empirical enough. It's either, it's either empirical, right here we can touch it, we can tap the table, we know this is here, versus theoretical, hypothetical, or theoretical in some way. And so Vic Stinger wrote a book called God, the Failed Hypothesis, where he sort of debunks a lot of the things that, that you were talking about. It's the other side of that. Right. And he wrote God in the Multiverse and talks about string theory. And uh, Lawrence Krauss wrote A Universe from Nothing. Mm-hmm. And I did the voiceovers for these books, really? many, many of these books, when they went to audio. I don't believe I did A Universe from Nothing, but I've done two Lawrence Krauss books, one about physics and one about uh, a, a fear of physics and then one about climate change. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I've, I've done like 36 of these audiobooks. I've produced them, directed them, or did the voiceover for them. And so being in-depth in that, I, I, I see both sides because the, the, the apologist would come on and pitch their book, and then I would find an atheist who wrote the counter position and right. produced that audiobook. So I have a good understanding of both. Um, to me, I think the next phase of this, and probably I think the hardest for you guys to address, is the problem of evil is certainly a big one, but I think divine hiddenness is probably the biggest, as, as big as the problem of evil is. <clears throat> and for those who don't know, because this, is, mm-hmm. this tends to be an apologetic you know, listening group, I guess, right? They're, they're interested in having conversations with atheists. So to, to, maybe. Maybe. So, so to, to, just to, to dissect the divine hiddenness argument, mm-hmm. it's if, and many Christians ask me this, so let me just save everyone all the time, what would it take for you to believe? Right. And I used to try to come up with something clever, someone funny or someone smile right, right. or whatever. And I would be like, oh, if God, da 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 da. And Lawrence Krauss was asked that one time at a, at a live talk I was at. And he said, if I walked outside and all of the stars were aligned that said, dear Lawrence Krauss, believe in me, that would be a start. And, of course, everyone laughed because he's like, I could be high on acid. Who knows how I saw that. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> and so... Uh, my new answer, I think, is a lot more honest and clear. When someone asks me, what would it take for you to believe? I say, I don't know. Right. But if there is something, 
God should know it. Yeah, God knows what it is. God knows what it is. Right. And if he's not doing it, he's the only one in our relationship that knows both of us exist, and he knows what it would take for me to acknowledge his existence. So what's he waiting for? I've got a podcast. I've got thousands of listeners. I have a following. Start with me. Move up to Sam Harris. (laughs) <laughs> Tap on Richard Dawkins. I'll shoot him a text. Let him know you're coming. Like, <laughs> right, exactly. Like th- it could be done. Whatever it is that would convince Richard, what would convince Sam, what would convince me, what would convince Dan Dennett. There's millions of us, including Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. I mean, you've got tons and tons of public atheists. Right. That are that. Whatever it is, God knows what would convince them. What's he waiting for? What's he waiting for? <clears throat> he wouldn't be messing with my free will by doing whatever it takes to prove to me he exists because Lucifer is my evidence for this. Lucifer knows God exists and right. shows against him anyway. Right. So God could absolutely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt to me that he exists. I could know he exists and still have the chance to turn my back on him. So what's he waiting for? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he do that? And I think divine hiddenness is probably, I think, is the hardest thing for apologists to address. I don't know. You may disagree. No, I, I mean, it would not be hard to address from a philosophical perspective, but from an emotional perspective, like what you said earlier about referencing the the family that's losing the child, it would sure feel evil. That's going to be, that's a totally different conversation. Well, it would feel evil. And who would you, who is in charge of that evil? I guess would be the question. You're when you're there and you're losing the child in that moment. Right. When you, if you you go back up the flow chart, ultimately God is the cause of it. God right. is the one causing the child to die. Right. Right. Which, so I would say, one, there's no evidence that causing a child to die is inherently evil. Um, that's not, I mean, I don't think you would apply that to abortion advocates, that, that every time they cause a child to die, that's inherently evil. Well, I don't call that a child. So we would have a difference. You don't call it a child? I wouldn't call it a child. Not not at, at certain points, I wouldn't. Interesting. Yeah. That'd be an interesting conversation. But yeah. But I don't think inherently causing a child to die is evil. There are situations under which it would be morally appropriate to do so that even we could name, much less if you were an eternal God rescuing a child forever and they're they're missing out on living a few decades in medieval Egypt. Well, okay, so our prehistory Egypt. So and this is this is such a good I'm so glad you said that. I'm a little disturbed, but I understand. Um Do you remember Andrea Yates? She yes, is, but I don't remember why. She uh killed her five children. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She yes. drowned them. She drowned five boys in her in her bathtub. Yes. Now, she did it for the same reasons that Abraham was about to do that to Isaac. It was to save him. It was because she said that God told her that was the only way to save her children. Right. Because she was having, she was obviously having mental illness issues. Right. And was saying that uh, the devil was going to get her kids as soon as they became the age of accountability. Right. And so to save them and make sure they go straight to heaven without get entering that age of accountability for the devil to get them, she took them one by one and drowned them in a bathtub and then stacked them on the bed and then called the police. Right. Um, because she had the mindset that killing a child isn't necessarily inherently evil. It was There could be a good because that was a direct path to go to, go to heaven. Right. So that mindset that killing a child isn't necessarily evil, I would say... From a humanist perspective, it is. When that child is alive and is a human being, which we could argue about the you know conception or whenever that thing becomes a person, but 
she killed, you know, living, breathing two, three, four, and five-year-olds. Uh-huh. Um, but from your I, perspective, I would say that that is. That's a horrifically evil. Okay, yeah. so if, if we were to follow your worldview, though, and take God totally out of the picture, how is anything evil? Like, like on what stand? It's just, do you believe that's actually evil, wrong, should never happen, or you just personally think that was a something I disagree with? Yeah, that's a great question. So I am... There's a growing number of non-believers who do identify with some objective moral truths, and I'm one of them. I think I think there are things that are objectively morally true regardless of the existence of a God or not. But what would they be <clears throat> grounded in? In other words, what would you, how could you actually say this is true for more than just me? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's it has to do with um, using just the facts of reality, observable reality, meaning if I pick up a lighter and I hold it to your skin, there is no debate that that causes you harm. Mm-hmm. Even if you enjoy it, it causes you harm, right? Uh, it causes damage to your skin, and there is no benefit to the human being for that to happen. It can cause an infection. It can cause all sorts of other issues. And if we keep doing it, eventually you will die. So there is a net negative to lighting your arm on fire. That is non-negotiable. There's no debate. I'm not going to have an argument as to why burning someone's arm off can be a good thing, okay? Um, That fact of reality means that that causes harm to the human and it does not provide a benefit to the human because getting a shot in your mouth is also causing harm to the human, but if it's to deaden it so that you can have a tooth extracted, then that's, it's worth it because of the net benefit. So if someone says, I want to torture babies just for fun, Mm -hmm. okay, well, you're wanting to cause pain to something, Without any real benefit, it's j- the the only benefit is your personal joy for getting t- for torturing something that's innocent. That's horrific. It's but, very clear. But, but why why is that wrong? Because of the and, facts and of reality that we know that ch- with torturing that child causes that pain. Okay, but so like so like me me lighting fire to your arm, even if it brings me joy, is causing you harm. But from your worldview, though, why is harming someone else wrong? I feel like you're borrowing morals from my worldview that says no. you shouldn't harm people. Like, why is that wrong from an evolutionary perspective? Well, no, because, because people were not harming one another before your worldview existed. So it's impossible. Were not? Right. They were, they were and they were not. So there were people who lived next door to each other that didn't beat each other to death before Christianity was a thing. Okay. It's in, you've got... So many years in China, you've got so many years in Egypt, you've got people who were not, like Christianity was non-existent, and there were people working together in communities. Communities were being built, homes were being built, families were thriving before your worldview existed. So it would be impossible for that worldview to borrow from yours. In fact, it's much more likely the other way around, is that Christianity came along, saw the good that already existed in humanity, and started taking credit for that morality saying God did it, when in fact it was already existing within people before your worldview existed. But from an, how would, how would natural selection or survival of the fittest mm-hmm. produce an ought? Like you ought to help your neighbor. Yeah, I disagree with David Hume on this. Okay. I think you can do this. Um, if you look... Because science can describe you heard what, of, what you heard happens. Of, it can't yeah. tell you it should have happened. I understand. Have you heard of kin selection? Mm-hmm. So kin selection is... Uh, when you see a prairie dog, for example, there's probably 13 in their little colony, and there's a couple of lookouts. 
Well, the two lookouts are standing there perched up, adorable, by the way, and they see a bird flying over, a, a, a bird of prey. They, don't, they could just easily climb in the hole and save themselves. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's beneficial to the bloodline and to all of evolution because they're all closely related and they pass on more of their own genetic material by yelling out and saving everyone, even if they die and get eaten as the watch out or uh, lookout. Okay? So more of the genetic material gets passed on if they help the entire community. So if, they're, if their community gets eaten and they survive, fewer of their DNA particles get passed on. So that's why we see what you would call morality in animals. We see it in whales. You know, whales will save people from sharks. They'll lift them out of the water. We see dogs running into traffic to grab another dog by the collar who's broken its leg and pull it off the road because it understands that the cars are dangerous. We see elephants mourning their own dead. We see elephants lifting other elephants out of their ditches. Why would they do that? Why would an elephant who is, is looking for resources, looking for water, looking for food, help something that's going to compete with it? It's because living in social groups is beneficial to intelligent mammals. Chimpanzees do the same thing. Bonobos do the same thing. Human beings do the same thing. If we live close together and you are healthy and doing well, I will do better and I can be healthy. If you're sick and dying, you're more likely to get me sick and cause me to die. If you're living next door to me, we can both lift this giant pallet of food into my home. If I don't know anybody else or you're dead, I have to drag this thing by myself. So as a society, we evolved compassion to help one another, and we also developed mirror neurons. I'm not, sh- I'm not, fam- I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept mm-hmm. of mirror neurons, but it's that concept when you see someone you know, get kicked in the midsection and you cringe, or you see someone put their hand on, an, on a stove burner and you cringe, that's a mirror neuron going, that might be happening to me. Your brain's not quite sure, so you cringe in that brief moment. You don't feel the pain in your body relaxes, but there's that brief moment of people flinching you know, when they see someone else get hit because of that mirror neuron. So when I see you walking toward a door, or I see you struggling, or I see that you're hungry, or I see you shivering, it is in my DNA. It, I have evolved compassion to care for my fellow mammals and put covering over you so that we can grow together as a society. So there is an evolutionary reason for compassion and love and morality, no God required. Because I read a, a book, oh my goodness, this is in the 90s. Ah. Uh, Anyway, in this book, it, Time Time Magazine did an article on this book. I want to say Roberts was in the guy's name. Anyways, but it, the the title on Time Magazine was Infidelity and Maybe in Our Genes. And uh, what this guy did is he studied, um, I think it was silverback gorillas. Yeah. And he talked about the way they'll have a harem and fight off other competition because their goal would be to get as much as their DNA into the next generation as they could. Right. And so they want to have as many opportunity so they would have they would collect a harem i know what you're talking about okay i know what study you're talking about. so his point was this is why men are unfaithful in their marriages is because it's in us to want to just propagate um our seed well, as much as we it's can billions of sperm per day like it's right. ridiculous I mean, it's way so, more than we would ever need yeah. okay but with that line of reasoning couldn't i say so if i'm fit enough and strong enough and i want to overpower this woman and rape her because it's going to get 
more likely my genes passed on. Mm-hmm. What in, in evolutionary thinking would say you shouldn't do that? Because evolution is not just about survival of the fittest. It often gets reduced to that, but that's not what it is. Evolution is about adaptability. Cockroaches and raccoons have been around forever because of their adaptability. But would you say it's wrong for the gorilla to fight off or even kill rivals so that they can have more females? It's difficult when you start applying morality to animals. But that's, then, what, but that's then, what we are, though. We are, but I'm saying when you, but they're not in a civilized society with laws and Congress, okay? So it's, it is a little different. And so when I try to apply my morality to a set of animals that are in the jungle— it's a little difficult because uh, they have a lack of understanding of it. I'm a vegan, but is it morally wrong for a cheetah to attack a gazelle? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, that's how they eat in nature, and there's no real concept of right and wrong to them on some, on some level. But there is this barbaric innate level of helping things like me. So a cheetah may help another cheetah, but not care at all about the gazelle because that's just food okay so when i point to animals to talk about morality i'm talking about how i care about you as another human being but we'll eat pigs no problem we'll i'll help you and buy you a dead pig to feed you bacon right so we we care about humanity as a whole not necessarily every living creature so the reason why it would still be wrong for you to rape someone even if you're powerful and strong enough to do it is because you're not adapting to your real surroundings. Your, our evolution has to do with living in a society. And you know what? Chimpanzees don't get away with rape. They get kicked out of the troop if they are having unconsensual sex. They get kicked out of the troop if they're stealing food. And they have to live on their own. They get ostracized from the group. And they almost always die. Because there's nothing to warn them about the tiger, there's nothing to help them find food, and there's nothing to help them fight off an attack from another group. So they are, they are at risk. And that's the punishment in bonobos and chimpanzees if you do break those rules. If you grab a female and start to have sex with her and she doesn't want to, you get kicked out. Mm-hmm. So that's also a part of that. You have to adapt to your surroundings. And when there are rules in your society, that's part of your adaptability. And if you don't evolve to live in that society, then... You're going to have to live on your own. But you can, but you would agree that you can still make your own rules. We talked about this the other day, like if we're on a desert island. It's always the illustration. I don't know how we got in the desert island. Right. But if we were to Lord of the Flies thing and just start our own civilization or whatever, uh, what what would you say, okay, foundational rule, number one that we've all got to agree on is going to be, would you say don't harm each other it all depends on the it all depends on our situation if it's freezing cold outside there may be rules about warmth and you know whatever if it's really really hot there may be rules about i but mean the, but, but I, I think it would have be, more to do you've with you've got to think of other people well, i think most most <sighs> rules are typically about protecting people who have a hard time protecting themselves but wouldn't, wouldn't someone, you say like that's the purpose of government is to like help those who who can't defend themselves. Like you don't just get to walk into my house. The government has a law against that. You don't just get to take my car. We have laws against that. Well, in our, yeah, in our government and other countries, I mean, people, and, and I guess what I'm thinking of is history is this long story. And I think this is what Chris was saying earlier about deconstructing our faith in humanity. History right. is this long story of people who don't care 
about other people. It's and so both. You have dic- I would disagree. You have dictators. Yeah, but you also have people living next door to each other that didn't make the news. Right, right, right. Who, who helped save lives all the time. So sure. It, we have both of those. Yeah, so you can observe them, but, but by what standard would you say that society is better than that society? Like, in other words, if it's working, if, if owning slaves, if owning people as property is working, and they're not related to me, they're not my kin, they're different... What ethnicity? Well, no, but they are related to you, okay. and that's the difference. With evolution, we do see them as related. But so they they are, and working for whom? Working for the people who own the slaves, but not for the people who are. So the mechanism by which to judge this situation would be John Rawls' uh, veil of ignorance. Now take yourself out of that situation and unbiasedly don't make a judgment. Which one is? Which one are you going to be? You're behind a veil of ignorance. You don't know if you're going to be the slave. You don't know if you're going to be the master. Do, should that situation exist? And that's where the ought comes in. It ought not exist if you can't thrive in both formats. You can't thrive as a slave. It's an easy way to wipe that out. And that's not even subjective. It is an objective moral truth because that veil of ignorance removes the subjectivity. You take the slave owner and you say, we're going to put you behind a veil of ignorance and put you back in the situation. Are you willing to roll the dice or should we get rid of slavery? The answer is clear. It's no longer about your opinion. So, again, the bottom line, I'm just trying to get down. The bottom line for your morality is going to be, does this harm other people? It would be human flourishing versus not reducing harm. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And, and honestly, that what led me to atheism is I felt like religion harms humanity. And I feel like God and, and belief in God often harms humanity. I, I don't think... As 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 disturbed as as Andrea Yates was, I don't. If no one had ever told her about God and a devil, her delusions would have never gone there. She would have never. There would have never been anything for her to save her children from. She might have still harmed them in some way. We don't know, but her entire basis of it was was the spiritual realm that she was taught as a child in a church that there was a God, that there's good and evil, and there was a God and a, a good guy and a bad guy and, and all of this. She's in a mental facility now. She's locked in a mental facility for doing exactly what people praise Abraham for attempting to do. And that's why we go, if Abraham were alive today, he'd be in a mental facility. He wouldn't be praised, raised up as some prophet of God. you know. So, I, And I think we're, we're getting beyond that, and, and more people are deconstructing out of that, being more logical, being more humane, being more loving, a lot of people, a lot of young people start coming out of the faith. And when I, when they come on my show, they go, you know, the first thing was my friend was gay. I was 14 and it was a female. And my, my, my friend was this 14 year old female. She told me she was gay and her parents uh, were accepting and loving. And I told my mom and she said, they're going to hell. And I'm going, Sarah, my best friend in the world, God is going to send her to hell. I'd rather be with Sarah than God, mm-hmm. right? My friend Trey Crowder, who's a comedian, he goes by the liberal redneck on Facebook, stand-up comic. He goes, his uncle was gay. This was his whole thing. He was going to church every Sunday. His uncle was gay. His uncle was going to the church. They were going. They were watch, he would come over every Sunday and watch football with his partner. This was in the 80s and 90s. And he said, uh, maybe early 90s. He's a little bit younger than I am. And he said, uh, one day his dad just told him, the church said, that, you know, your uncle can't come anymore. You know, we can't do that anymore, so we're going to have to either stop talking to him or go back to church. 
you know, because Jesus doesn't approve of his relationship. And, and Trey Crowder, and he does this in his stand-up, and he's really Southern, he's from Tennessee. He goes, my uncle comes over every Sunday to watch football. I ain't ever even got an email from Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's funny to a lot of people because he's like, that, that's that relationship. I love my uncle to death. He happens to be attracted to a man, and they're over here every week. That's where my relationship is. That's where my loyalty is. So they stop going to church. Right. You know, and I, I hear from so many atheists that will tell me I was seven. I was six. I heard that my Catholic friend was going to hell because we were Jehovah's Witnesses. Or I right. was Catholic and my friend down the street was Baptist and my mom told me they're going to hell. And I'm like, then I don't want to be a part of your church because I want to spend time with my friend before they go get tortured by your imaginary friend. And right. that starts the wheels turning. So that's when I say atheism, believe it or not, is often rooted in love love for humanity, care for people, and moving away from something that we see as harmful. But the, um, and we talked about this years ago, but it's, it's intriguing to me that with all that in place, you don't apply the John Rawls rule to abortion. And we talked um, about that then, like you don't know if you're the unborn person or if you're David Smalley, you get to pick. Now, what do you believe yeah, about it? You don't get no, to pick. Now, still, what do you believe I would, about abortion? I would still do it. And here's why I would still say it's okay because my life has not formed. Right. And that woman's life has. She has things. She has a life. She has health. She has financial issues. She has living conditions. She has a whole world that she has built around herself, and the fetus has not. So right. even if I'm the fetus, abort me. If you can't take care of me, abort me. If, if you can't provide a life for me, you don't want me. Who wants to be born into a family that doesn't want them? Abort me. I, I do not want to exist if you don't want me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reconstructed Faith. If you enjoyed what you heard or were challenged, please leave us a review. It'll help other people find us. If you have questions or a topic you'd like to hear discussed, shoot me an email at info at southspring.org. Reconstructed Faith is a resource of South Spring Baptist Church. Remember, don't give up, trust God, search for answers.